You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. So good morning. My name is Blair, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, be with you today to share God's Word. Um, We're going to just be continuing uh, to explore the book of Daniel. That's what we've been doing for some time now with our sermon series titled Exiles. And and I use the word explore because, in part, um, we've made it ultra-confusing in terms of what's happening in Daniel. In case Daniel isn't already confusing enough for us, uh, we've been just jumping around the first few chapters for a long time now. So last week, Pastor Greg concluded chapter 2. But guess what? We were in chapter 3 before Christmas. Um, So with that said, uh, I know it's confusing, and it's not just haphazard or random. um, But I want to remind us quickly of what was happening in chapter 3, because there's a chunk that's missing, you know, if we're going from last week to this week. Um... I'll just sort of catch us up. Um, So the king, uh, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream, and he was confused and disturbed by it, so he called his magicians to interpret for him, and they couldn't do it. And so, um, like any good king, he said, I'm going to kill you all uh, because you didn't do what I asked. And then uh, Daniel came in, uh, a Jewish uh, man in exile, and said, no, 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 don't kill all of your leaders. I want to... um, you know, pray and help you with your dream. And so God intervenes. He gives Daniel uh, the meaning of the dream as well as the interpretation. And so that's good news for everyone, including the king. He's very pleased to have his dream interpreted by this uh, Jewish man who's, I said, like I said, his name is Daniel. And um, so that's happening at the end of chapter th- 2. And then as we come into chapter 3, um, we have Nebuchadnezzar taking what Daniel told him about his dream and just running with it like a crazy person. Um, in that, in his dream, there was a statue, and it meant a whole bunch of different things. It was made of different materials. But part of it was made of gold. And Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, the gold part does represent you, but there's all this other stuff. Um, and so as we come into chapter 3, and this is what we were speaking about before Christmas, uh, the king decides to build a statue. It's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, uh, but the whole statue is gold, not part of it. So it's kind of like his dream, but it's just sort of like his, you know, version of it, I suppose, what he wishes were true. Um, And so we don't know if the statue is of the king. It may have been, or it may have, you know, been a statue of uh, a god that he served or just whatever. Maybe he got creative. We don't know. Um, but we do know what the statue represents, right? We can understand what it symbolizes. The statue is, is uh, put up in place to represent the greatness of Babylon, uh, the power of the king's reign, and all that he stands for, and so on and so forth. I was uh, interested, as I was reading, I learned that there are historians who have a document from the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, which says this, May future kings respect the monument. Remember the praise of the gods. He who respects my royal name, who does not abrogate my statutes and does not change my decrees, his throne shall be secure, his life lasts long, and his dynasty shall continue. So the statue stands as a testament 
uh, to the king and to his reign, to his pride, and so on. He wants all people in the land not only to see the statue when they're passing by it, but he, he gathers them all to bow before it, doesn't he? Anybody who's anyone, all the important people, I'm sure from as far as he can manage to reach, he, he gathers the people before this statue to have them bow. And the fine print is that if you don't bow to the statue, you'll be burned alive. At this point, it seems like I should remind us that the story we're reading today is far from a children's you know, tale, so to speak. Um, I say this because many of us have probably heard this story before in Sunday school. I'm not sure about you. Um, or maybe it was the VeggieTales version that you were raised on. Anybody? VeggieTales? Um, I can't read the story without just picturing the vegetables instead of the, the humans. Um, so that's weird. Yeah, and the, uh, the chocolate bunny. So this is, <laughs> I bring this up partly to say it's not a children's story, but also perhaps more significantly to remind us that if our understanding of the story remains childish, we'll miss out on some of the very intense, mature themes that the book of Daniel uh, and that God is bringing to our attention in this story. What we're witnessing is the incredible evil that occurs when a nation makes an idol of itself, when a leader deifies himself. And with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we witness the ways that God's people can resist evil while they live in this type of setting, in exile. So, as I was saying, the king has made a service where he's going to demand that everyone will worship the statue when they hear the music start. And everything seems to be set up just the way he planned it to go on his special day for this shiny new statue. And this brings us up to where I'll be reading from today. I'm going to read, for now, Daniel uh, 3, 8 to 13. And I'm going to go in chunks through the story. So for now, Daniel 3, 8 to 13, if you have a Bible or an app you want to read from, please do. Uh, we'll also have it on the PowerPoint. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, remember this list, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. We'll do that for now. Um, <laughs> speaking of every kind of music. Um, so there's all these instruments when they hear them. Everyone has to fall down and worship the golden statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Have you ever tried to swing a deal with God? 
Have you ever tried to make a deal with God? You can be honest. I've done it for sure. Uh, Homer Simpson has done it. It's, it's a common occurrence in movies and in real life um, when we're in a tight spot to try to appeal to God. And the logic usually goes something like this. I need God's help, so I'm going to make a promise to him, some kind of favor where I'll do something for him. And in return, out of obligation, God will get me out of the situation that I'm currently faced with. I don't know if you've done this. Like I said, I have. And I think many people do. This is common thinking for us. I bring this up because in today's passage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in serious trouble, aren't they? Of all people, these young men are in need of a little help. They need a way out, don't they? But as we'll find in the verses that come, they don't actually try to strike up a deal with God. They don't even really try to swing a deal with the king. Instead, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give us a picture of true and honest faith in the face of danger. The behavior of these men is an example of what true and honest faith in God looks like when the going gets really, really tough. And this brings up all sorts of things that we'll uh, be discussing this morning as we go. In verse 8, we have the Chaldeans. They seem like henchmen or something. They come in with uh, some dirt that they want to you know, use to get these Jewish men in trouble. They apparently hate Daniel's friends, and we're not sure why. Uh, Because like I said, Daniel actually probably saved their lives with his interpretation of the king's dream. And yet here we have them um, trying to kill uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they may be jealous. Um, They may be racists. We don't know what drives them to, to rat out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego other than the desire to see them dead. That much is clear. It says they maliciously accuse the Jews. And they're good at it. They're good at, um, speaking of calling in a favor from someone, they're good at getting the king to do what they want him to do, aren't they? Um, Nebuchadnezzar, as crazy as he is, he's also quite predictable. If you go after his pride, well, he's going to freak out. So they play to the king's insecurity. First, they praise his greatness, which is always a good idea if you're hanging out with the royal type of people. Uh, Long live the king, you know, you're amazing, and so on. Uh, But then they get down to business by explaining what the king had said. They repeat his law back to him. And, and then the kicker is that there are those who apparently Nebuchadnezzar was not aware of. Um, there are some people, some Jewish men, who don't care about you, king. They, do, they don't respect you. Basically, they, they don't think that you are as great as you think you are. They don't want to bow before the statue. They don't worship your gods. Um, so what do you say? Um, Oh, and they reminded him of the part about the furnace, too. So, as we read, the king is furious, and he demands that the three men come and stand before him at once. So, let's read uh, verses 14 to 15. 
where Nebuchadnezzar asks them, Shadrach, so, so these are the Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? So before we jump to, you know, the crazy part that he says at the end, it's interesting to me that in verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar shows a semblance of patience or reason given the situation and his tendency for, you know, explosive behavior, he actually questions the validity of the accusation that the Chaldeans have brought forth. He says, you know, this is what I've heard. Is it true? Is it true that you don't serve my gods and you won't worship this gold statue that I've set up? And he even takes the time to remind them of the rules of the game. He says, I've built a statue, the music rocks, everyone else is bowing down, so what's the problem here? Didn't you hear about the fire? I've built for those who dissent. Perhaps this has all been a silly misunderstanding. I'm sure this is what he's thinking. Why won't you do it? Because whatever the king believes, it's clear that he thinks that no one, not even a god, could stand against the greatness of his plan and his power. His words in 15 sound like a mockery. Who is the God that you worship? What do you think he's going to do for you now? Don't you see what's really happening here? I mean, really, he's appealing to their reason. He's saying, like, it's pretty simple. You're supposed to bow, and if you don't, there's nothing that you can do. There's no way that you're getting out of this. Not even God can save you. So in a minute, we're going to read what Shadrach, Meshach have to say in response to this. But let's think about it first. They have an opportunity to reply and defend themselves, to defend their faith. Um, in Nebuchadnezzar's attack on them, he makes a theological statement that these men obviously disagree with. Basically, he says, I'm more powerful than your God. And the Jews don't believe that, do they? And so I think that they could respond with a long list of reasons to explain to Nebuchadnezzar why he's in the wrong and why they have faith and what God can do, the power of the God they serve. They've seen him at work in their lives. They've seen him work in the lives of their fathers and their father's fathers. And for crying out loud, they've even seen God work in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, haven't they? They know that Yahweh is mighty to save. Yet, what's interesting to me is they don't really take the bait. They don't really go there with the king. Instead, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's reply, their resistance to his threat is calm. It's peaceful. And it's astoundingly faithful to God above all else. So let's read that now. Three uh, 16 to 18, excuse me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, 
Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. And this isn't a rude thing for them to say. They're basically saying, legally, we have no response. You're right. We're refusing to do what you ask. Uh, We don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you, the king, to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the idol, the gold statue, excuse me, that you set up. So at this point, as I was suggesting at the start, is probably where I would be trying to swing a deal with God, or at least with the king, to get out of what's about to happen. Many of us would be trying to call in a favor, pleading with God, or at least the king, with our words to change things, to keep us alive, to save our lives. Maybe we can bend the rules, we can bow down to the idol just once, but you know, in our heads actually be praying to the true God, and he'll be cool with it, because we'll never ever worship an idol again after this, it's just this once, that type of thing. That's not what they do. Instead, with amazing faith, these men admit, um, interestingly, that they don't know what's about to happen. They don't pretend to know what's about to happen. They refuse to um, debate with the king about his theology. There is no doubt in their minds as to God's ability to save them from suffering. Yet they don't pretend to know if, in this moment, God will choose to come through and save them. So they don't doubt in God's ability to save them. But they don't say one way or another what God's going to do in the next few moments. They don't pretend to know that. The outcome doesn't ultimately change things for them. They won't worship an idol. The outcome doesn't change things for them. The bottom line is they're not going to bow down to the king's idol, to his statue. Now, as it turns out, uh, spoiler warning, if you don't know this story, next week we're going to discover that God indeed does come through and save the men. But we're not going to get there this morning. I wanted to stay here for today. As it turns out, God does not come in and save them from the fiery furnace, uh, as we'll read next week. But what God does do is keep them safe in the furnace. God does not come in and save them from what's at hand necessarily, but what he does do is keep them safe inside the furnace. So that's what we have to uh, look forward to as we gather again next week. So that's our passage. Let's um, zoom out for a moment and talk about what's going on here and what we have to learn and apply. Um, As I was saying, the king has deified his position of power. In other words, he thinks that he's equal or greater to the gods. He's deified his own position to the point where he believes that Gods are nothing compared to him. There's nothing that gods can do to stop his plan from happening. Nebuchadnezzar sees himself and his empire as God. And the result of this 
as is very clearly laid out for us, is that human life is expendable. Nebuchadnezzar sees himself and his power as equal or greater to God's, and the result of this is that human life is expendable. If you don't go along with the king's plans, then you're fired. Get it? Because of the fire. Also because of a certain man who likes to say you're fired. Um, (laughs) And it's kind of funny, but also kind of not. Because the problem is ancient. This is an ancient story, but persistent. As old as the story of Daniel is, the themes are just as relevant today, and they have been you know, ever since at different parts of history and different parts of the world with different types of leaders. The themes are relevant to us today. Nations and leaders continue to deify themselves, and people continue to suffer because of it. This is real. So how do Christians, how do God's people followers of Jesus, uh, remain faithful in exile? This is the question every week that we're asking and that we're continuing to ask today. If we think about this story in our own setting, there will be some some similarities. Um, We who follow Jesus will be faced with accusations from those who see the universe from a vastly different standpoint than we do, won't we? There will be people who demand answers to rash theological questions and they'll put pressure on us to reply with an argument. And there will be people who will tell us that no God can save us from whatever problems we're facing or familiar with. How do we respond to those people? I believe that we can learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to the accusations of the king. As I said, the the reply is balanced and it's calm. It's full of wisdom, and it's firm. So the main thing that strikes me in their reply, in the faith of these men, is that, as I said, they do not assume that God will provide a way out of suffering. These men don't assume that God's going to act in a particular way to save them from the king's threat. And apparently, to a certain degree, they're okay with it. This is their belief that's in their, it's in their theology. And like them, I think that we also have to be okay with the idea that God's kingdom exists and Jesus has won the victory, but it's currently, God's kingdom is currently still opposed to the evil empires, and this is a tension in which we continue to live until Jesus returns. So in spite of this, as we live with these tensions, we do believe that God can save us from present trials. We do believe that God can save us from whatever, from anything. And we choose to put our faith in him. But our faith does not depend upon you know, the outcomes that we see, but upon who he is, Right? So like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our faith in God must never be contingent upon his intervention in our momentary hardship. And this is particularly challenging to those experiencing suffering in real life. So I want to speak to that. Um, 
to remind you that God is present with you in it. As, as was the case with the furnace, God did not promise to, um, you know, remove the situation from them, but he kept them safe within it. He was present with them in the fire. Psalm 46 reads this, 1 to 3, and then I'll jump to verse 11 at the end. Psalm 46. Um, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. He's present. So what? Well, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, and the mountains tremble at its swelling. And verse 11 says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Psalm 66, 12 Um, which is part of the song which we sang in the first set this morning, says, We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us to a place of abundance. And then the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, 1-3, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God stays the same and he promises to be present with us as we walk through these types of things. Not only is God present with us while we um, endure suffering presently, or difficulties, or whatever it is. But he also promises that these things are not useless, but in fact they're a part of his bigger plan, and that he is very much at work in the midst of these times. Um, Romans 8 explains it this way. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Have you ever been in a place where you don't know what to say and you don't know what to pray? Well, the good news is the Spirit is praying and interceding for you, even as you're just speechless. And he who searches our hearts and minds, uh, sorry, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God. We are called according to his purpose. I think sometimes we misread verse 28, that all things will work together for those who love God, as to to say that, you know, everything will be fine, right? Um, If you just love God, then, then all your problems will go away. But whose purpose is at work in this? It's not ours. It's his. So there's a tension there. We know that all things work together for those who love God. Yes, we are called according to his purpose. And so we trust in him and his good plan. Um, So while we're faced with bad things, with, with the pressures of being spiritual exiles, wherever we are, 
Um, I also want to mention that our witness to those who hate us will be powerful as a testament to the work of the Spirit of Jesus within us. Our witness to those who hate us will be powerful as a testament to the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we take the example of the Jewish man in the story today. They refuse to worship an idol, and it's no different for us. Uh, there may not be, you know, a, a national idol f- for which we are expected or demanded to bow down before, but there's always idols that are, we're being told to worship in a certain sense, aren't there? And Christians have to continue to refuse to do this because we believe that there is no physical embodiment of God other than Jesus of Nazareth. So no, we don't worship idols. We worship Jesus. We worship God the Father with his spirit. Colossians 1, 15, 16 speaks to this. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So we have no use for idols. Instead, we have a faith that's founded on the reality of who Jesus is and our allegiances to him instead of worldly kings, powers, and idols. So these are some things for us to uh, think on and reflect on in our setting where we find ourselves here and now. Um, As we conclude and turn towards the communion tables, I can't help but think of a number of parallels between the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the story of Jesus before and at his crucifixion. Um, And this is good. We've talked before about Jesus being the better Daniel. And while as much as we can be encouraged by the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they weren't perfect. They were empowered by the Spirit, but um, there's but a shadow of what Jesus would be in the time to come and is to those of us who believe in him. The reason that I want to compare today's passage to the crucifixion is because like these three men, Jesus was also uh, accused and, and put on trial. And when given the chance to defend himself against the rulers who were questioning him, He remained silent and he said very little. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this before it happened. Uh, Isaiah 53, 6 to 8. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. And in the time of Jesus' arrest, in the Gospel of John, he responds to his accusers with, 
as much. We can read John 18, 36 to 37. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. This is something we've talked about throughout our Exile series. God's kingdom, the kingdom which Jesus came to fulfill and bring and display for us, it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, then I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. With these things in mind, um, I'll invite you in a minute to come before the communion tables, which we do each week. Broken bread represents the body of Jesus broken on the cross. The juice is a representation of the blood that was spilled on the cross. All for you and I, so that we may live truly in him. By eating this meal, we are invited to declare our allegiances to Jesus in this life. To Jesus, the eternal king of kings who conquered sin and death, not by political power and might, not by fighting, but by humility and sacrificial love. And in his resurrection from the cross, from the grave, we worship Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, of the exact imprint of God's nature. After making purifications for our sins, Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the majesty of God the Father on high. So when you are ready to respond by receiving communion, you're invited to do so on your own time. You can uh, come to the tables to take both of the elements and receive them on your own in your seats with prayer. Uh, We will have prayer ministers at the back windows. If there is something that uh, God is stirring in your heart today that you want someone to pray with you about, um, please feel free to see them and have them pray with you as we finish. Um, And I want to pray now as well as we move into communion and worship. So let's bow our heads and pray. Um, God, as we deal with the reality of following you in a world that not necessarily does follow you, I thank you, Lord, for the reminder that exile is not a new idea for your people. The trials that we face are not new, and they're certainly not unknown to you, Lord, nor are they ignored. God, you hear our prayers. You are mighty to work and to save us from trial. We believe this, Lord. We thank you for the inspiration towards true and strong faith, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they faced the king. God, I thank you that your kingdom is so opposite to the evil that we see all around us. And in this, we have eternal hope in life through Jesus by the power of your grace and the blood that you shed on our behalf on the cross for our sins. May we receive this this morning as we take communion, God, just with thankful and humble hearts submitted again to the glory of you, the Father, filled with your Holy Spirit. 
We thank you for these things and for this time, Lord. I pray. Amen.